The scripture reading is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, verses 17 to 27. It can be found on page 846 in the Black Bibles. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, and he had great possessions. For he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who could be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Bruce, so much. Uh, Good morning. Uh, Great to be with you all this morning. We are on week two of a mini-series, so to speak, in the month of February regarding um, financial stewardship. So if you make it through this morning's sermon, you are two-thirds of the way done. You're almost there. And we're taking a break to do this uh, from our normal programming in the Gospel of Mark, but lo and behold, look where we are. Uh, We're in the Gospel of Mark. Um, And so let me pray, and we will take a look at what the Lord has for us in this passage. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that you would show us wonderful things from your word. We thank you that our salvation is made possible in you, Lord Jesus. And we ask that you would uh, let us rest in that in this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. What is the geographic center of the Christian church? Have you ever thought about that? What's the geographic center of Christianity? Uh, I read, uh, I've read actually a lot from seminary onward, a famous, well, famous you have to put in quotations because this is theology nerd stuff again, but a famous uh, historian of Christianity and history of mission movements in Christianity, a guy named Andrew Walls. Uh, he's been asking that question for many years and he made an interesting point that most world religions tend to still be centered on or around, somewhere around the place where they were founded. So Islam, if you take that as an example, was founded on the Arab Peninsula. And while, of course, diaspora is occurring for well over a thousand years, that's still its center. Buddhism, while growing in popularity in the West, is still an Eastern religion. Hinduism, which began in India, is still based there in India. But what about Christianity? Well, if you define Christianity as beginning with those who first witnessed the resurrected Jesus in the first century, here's what you'll see. Christianity began its life with the resurrection of Jesus in Jerusalem. But quickly, it left, it departed, it departed from Jerusalem as its center. It went to Asia Minor, which is now Turkey, and it went into North Africa, and it went into 
Rome, largely through the conversion of Gentiles, non-Jewish people. And then the center of Christianity shifted again through the conversion of horribly, you know, heathen-type people in northern Europe. And for several hundred years, the center of Christianity was located in northern and western Europe. And then through colonization to places like us here in the United States. Now, in the second half of the 20th century, another migration and monumental shift began. Christianity has been losing ground in northern and western Europe and in the United States, but it has been growing by leaps and bounds in places like South America, sub-Saharan Africa, and East Asia, particularly in China. In fact, by the end of the 20th century, this is something that Andrew Walls writes about in one of his books, by the end of the 20th century, something incredible happened. There were more professing Christians, more professing believers, south of the equator than north of the equator. More professing Christians in the southern hemisphere than in the northern hemisphere. So the center of the Christian church has not remained static. It moves, it shifts over time. So the question is, why does that happen? Somebody asked that question to Andrew Walls one time in a lecture, and this is what he said. One must conclude that there is a certain vulnerability, a fragility at the heart of Christianity. You might say that it is the vulnerability of the cross. And what Walls means by that statement is this. The heart of Christianity, of course, is the cross. And what lies at the heart of the cross is sacrifice, giving up power, which is what Jesus did. Sacrificing oneself for the good of the other, pouring out resources. And whenever, historically, over the last 200 year, 2,000 years, whenever Christianity has gotten too close to the center of power and the center of wealth, as it did in Rome all those years ago, as it did in northern and western Europe, as it has in the United States, the radical and sacrificial message of the cross begins to get muted. It begins to get absorbed into the culture. Christianity becomes a very safe religion. It becomes co-opted in agendas for power and influence. Christianity begins to lose its transformative power because it begins to lose its heart. The transformative power of the cross and the self-sacrifice that results from it. It then becomes dormant. It becomes stale. It becomes safe. And the center of Christianity moves into another place where that message of the cross makes more immediate impact. So Walls claims that the center of Christianity, Christianity, this, that's a hard word to say, the center of Christianity, contrary, by the way, to what health and wealth preachers would tell you, Christianity is always migrating away from power and wealth. That's the history of it. I, I'm, not, I'm not actually trying to shock you. I'm actually trying to give you a historical detail. Christianity from the first century onward, is always migrating away from power and wealth. The story that Mark tells us of this rich young man tells us why. First, by showing us the trap of money. And secondly, graciously, by showing us the escape hatch from the trap of money. So first, we see in this passage 
the trap of money. Now, here's the thing. Money in and of itself is not evil. It is not. In some senses, the fact or the circumstances of money is neutral. So the capitalists who would tell you that money is by nature good or wealth is by nature good or the Marxist who would tell you that wealth by nature is evil, they're both leading us down the wrong path. It's a circumstance. It's in some senses neutral. It is the love of money. It is the love of money that springs a trap for your heart. But nevertheless, Jesus does make a case here that true spiritual danger lies and lurks inside the hearts of the wealthy. Look at what Jesus says beginning in verse 24, if I can see it. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now one of the things we're going to see as we go through this passage is that Jesus tells us so many head-scratchingly confusing things. A ton of them. And this is actually one of them. What's he saying? Well, the statement about a camel going through the eye of a needle is a metaphor. And most of my life, I've thought that it was a metaphor for something being really hard. It's really hard for the camel to go through an eye of a needle, right? Well, that's not what Jesus is saying. This is a metaphor for impossibility. It is impossible for a camel, which was the largest land animal that they knew about in that area of the world in the first century because they didn't live in a place with elephants, It is impossible for that animal to go through the eye of a needle, which is the smallest opening that they could conceive of. It's not hard. It's impossible. So that's strange, right? Because is Jesus saying that it is absolutely impossible for a rich person to go to heaven? Well, if that's what Jesus was saying, we have an even larger problem. Because there are a lot of rich people in the Bible that certainly seemed to be Christians, that certainly seemed to be a part of God's plan and purposes, that certainly seemed to be going to heaven. Here, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Job, David, Joseph of Arimathea, who you know, allowed Jesus to be buried in his own tomb, Priscilla and Aquila, who were very impactful in Paul's ministry, actually Paul's one of Paul's supporters in his ministry in the book of Acts, they were all rich. And so it's a a very strange thing that Jesus says. The disciples get it, right? They get it. They grasp the impossibility of the metaphor and they exclaim, then who can be saved? They knew about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, right? Who can be saved? And Jesus says, with man, it is impossible, but not with God. With God, all things are possible. In other words, salvation, apart from the transformative work of God in your heart and in your life, is impossible actually for anyone, not just for the rich. God must intervene or you and I are lost. But if that's the case, why is Jesus picking on this poor guy here? This poor rich guy, why is he going after him so hard? Well, the reason is this. Our biggest spiritual problem since the sin of our first parents, Adam and Eve, is the sin 
of self-sufficiency. It is the sin of the desire to be our own God. That's the corruption and the depravity that sin cultivates deeply into all of our hearts. But you see, this corruption and this depravity is particularly exacerbated in the wealthy. So what is impossible for all of us is kind of like an impossible plus for the rich. The heart corruption is made more acute by the presence of money. So there really is, in some senses, spiritual disadvantage to being rich. Why? Because you can use that money to convince yourself that you don't need Jesus. You can use that money to fool yourself into believing that you're okay, that you make yourself okay. When you can buy the right house in the right neighborhood and send your children to the right schools and join the right social clubs and wear the right clothes and have all of the right friends, it is easier to be blinded to the depth of your spiritual need. In other words, you can fool yourself into thinking that the only thing that you really need to make you safe in this world is money. And the more that you have, then the safer and the more insulated that you are. This is the lie that leaves you exposed. It leaves you deeply exposed at a heart level and unprepared. It leaves you unprepared to face the reality of life. You have made a ton of money and so you believe that you're safe but you're then not ready when the cancer diagnosis comes when you're 45 years old. You've made a ton of money, so you feel like you're safe, but why do you feel so alone all the time? Is it because you have neglected the first things? You've neglected your relationship with the Lord and your closest relationships. You've made a ton of money, so you feel safe, but why are you so stressed? Why are you so burdened? Why do you carry this weight so much around on your shoulders all the time? Is it because it takes constant maintenance, constant, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, maintenance. And you believe that one false move can cause that entire edifice to fall down and crumble around you. Is it because it is burdensome to struggle to know what to do with wealth once it's acquired? You see, if you lean on money for safety, you won't be ready when something comes along. And something always comes along. Always, that money can't fix. Jesus knows this. That's where we're going. Jesus knows this. And he gets to the heart of the matter in this interaction with this rich young man. You see, this young man runs up to Jesus and he falls at his feet. This tells us something important. This guy was serious. He was earnest. He was not messing around. This is in a part of the book of Mark or the gospel of Mark where people are trying to trap Jesus in a lot of inconsistencies. Not this guy. This guy wants to know the answer to the question that he asks. Good teacher, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, it is here that we get to the second head-scratching moment in this passage. It's kind of a back-to-back head-scratcher. The question is a head-scratcher, and the answer is a head-scratcher. Jesus begins with the strangest words. Why do you call me good? I, I love, have you ever noticed as you're reading through the Gospel of Mark, people come to Jesus all the time with an agenda, and Jesus just switch it. Not, we're not going to talk about this. We're going to talk about something else. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? What? 
I'm not prepared for that. He does that on purpose. Now, it's in this moment that it helps us to be us because we have way more information about Jesus than this guy did. This rich young man did not know a whole lot about Jesus. We know more because we have the whole Bible. We know from Jesus' own mouth that he is God himself and therefore Jesus is good. So Jesus is good. But this young man didn't know that about him. And that's the point. He simply knows Jesus by reputation as being a wise rabbi, literally a good teacher. So Jesus is saying, this descriptive word good that you have described to me is revelatory of part of your problem. I'm going to get to that in a second, Jesus says. Because you think that inheriting eternal life is a matter of being good. As far as you know, I'm just another rabbi, yet you come to me and you call me good. Why? So the second problem is the kind of crazy answer that Jesus gives to his question. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Now the guy's like, you know, he's been caught by the left hook and he's kind of wobbling a little bit. And so Jesus says, well, you know the commandments, just keep them. What? Keep the commandments? Jesus, is Jesus telling us in this passage that the way to inherit eternal life is to obey the Ten Commandments? Doesn't the Apostle Paul tell us like a thousand times that we can't do that? That, that, that there's no way to inherit, uh, inherit eternal life? There's no way to have a relationship with God by keeping the law? He, he, he actually does say that. Doesn't he say that we're saved by grace through faith, not by works, so that no one may boast? Is Jesus in the Bible, are they being blatantly inconsistent here? He's not. And, and this is why. Jesus deals with this young man exactly this way because Jesus knows that this is exactly how this individual needs to be dealt with. The, one of the, one of the, there are a million ways to read the Gospels, but one of the things that's instructive about reading the Gospels is to see the different ways that Jesus interacts with different people. He doesn't come with a formula. He doesn't have like a shtick. Like this is Jesus' counseling method. He, he gets at the heart of what somebody's wrestling. He has an advantage, okay, over us in that. He is Jesus. But, but it's actually important that he teaches, he treats people as individuals. And he treats this man like he needs to be treated. The clue is in this man's question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? You see, Jesus knew something about this young man. Jesus knew that he wasn't ready for him just to lay the full, what we would understand now is the full gospel at his feet. You can't do anything to inherit eternal life. I'm going to the cross. I'm going to die for your sins. You just believe in me and you'll have eternal life. This young man was not prepared for this. He wasn't ready for this. He didn't think he needed to be saved. You see? Something was still nagging at his heart, but that's why he was struggling so much. I've done all this stuff. Why do I have this nagging still that something is not okay? What Jesus had to do was show him his need. He had to reveal to him his heart. He had to convince him that he really did need to be saved. And so this is how he did it. You lack one thing, he said. Go sell all that you have and give it to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And then come, follow me. And the text tells us that the young man went away sorrowful because he had great possessions. You see what Jesus did? 
he put his finger right on this man's God. He found his Savior. His Savior was his wealth, his possessions. Sure, outwardly you, you do. You keep the commands of God. But the question that Jesus is confronting with, is with, with him with is this. Is God enough for you? Is he enough for you? What if you didn't have great wealth? What if you didn't have great possessions? Would God be enough for you? And that right there is the, one, is the thing that highlights the spiritual disadvantage of the wealthy. Is Jesus really enough for you? You see, the poor have already had to, they've had to deal with this question already. For followers of Jesus, say, in sub-Saharan Africa, who are truly poor, truly poor, scraping by, literally, day by day, Jesus has to be enough for them. Because in many respects, Jesus is what they have. For followers of Jesus in a place like China, for example, people who are truly persecuted, like really physically persecuted, Jesus has to be enough for them. Why? Because they actually live day by day in real danger that their possessions will be taken from them. That all their stuff will be taken from them. And that they'll go to jail. Jesus has to be enough for them. But what about you and me? Is Jesus enough for us? Now this isn't to, to be trite, to say if you lose your job that you're supposed to feel guilty if you feel concerned or anxious about your future. Not at all. But it is to force all of us to ask a very important question. At the end of the day, truly, 100%, am I building my life on what I can provide for myself and for my family? Does my identity reside in my possessions and my wealth? Could I be radically generous, and I mean really radically generous, and still be joyful and still be okay because Jesus is enough? How would you know? That's, that's the question. How would you know the answer to that question? Last week I wanted to give you one solid tangible application point to walk away with. If you forgot it, tough, I'm going to remind it of you. It was to do a, an audit of your bank account and your time. Audit your finances and audit your time and ask yourself if your use of your finances and your time are aligning with the treasure of the kingdom of God. It, it, it doesn't get much easier this week, I hate to tell you. Uh, because for us, in the culture that we live in, and, and, and by the way, we're, I mean, we're, we're, this is not the richest part of the world that we live in, but we're getting pretty close to it like if you take if you if you just take the laser beam and you go from the United States to Texas to Houston to sitting basically on the pinpoint of the map at I-10 and 610 that's getting that's getting closer to the bullseye than some okay so for us in our culture where we live one way to fight against the ever-present temptation to build our identities to build our salvation, to build our hope on money, simply is to give it away in a pattern of regular sacrificial giving. And both of those words actually are important. Here are the two questions I want to ask you. Do you give your money away regularly? 
Now, here's a, this is a family moment at Christ the King. So if you're visiting this morning, this, this morning uh, you're about to get some information. You're listening in. But everybody else who's been here a while kind of knows this. I, I don't have any idea at all what it is that people at Christ the King actually give. But I do know one thing, and you know this too if you've been here any length of time. That the very fact that every year over 40% of our tithes and offerings at Christ the King comes in essentially in the last two weeks of December. It means that that there are many among us who have not developed and cultivated the grace of regular giving. Regular giving. So my encouragement for you this morning is to question that. To examine that. Even to change that. The reason is this. Regular giving provides a regular check to your heart. You know, if you only give once at the end of the year, and it's December, and 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 Christ the King is like another nonprofit, kind of knocking down the door, you know, asking for for your money, and, and you only give once at the end of the year. There are basically only two times in the year that you have to think about that. One is on the day that you contribute, and the second is on the day that you do your taxes. Or at least collect your tax data, right? That leaves you 363 days of the year. Well, 364 days this year. It's a leap year. To, uh, you know, only to think about how to put your money to use for yourself. That is way more than enough time for any of us to build our hope and our hearts on money. And of course, one of the practical consequences for that with respect to Christ the King is that one of the, while it's great news, we have zero long-term debt at Christ the King. No long-term debt. For a church, that's a really, truly wonderful thing. But we do borrow on a yearly basis. We do borrow from a line of credit uh, to, to, to meet our expenses throughout the year that we pay off in December when our giving comes in. Regular giving could make zero long-term debt also turn into zero short-term debt which would really be a wonderful thing for our church. And I call this a grace on purpose because it is a way that you and I remember on a regular basis that God owns everything that we have. We need to remind ourselves of that on a regular basis, that he's entrusted it to us to put to use for his purposes, not just for our own. We need to regularly remind ourselves of that. That's hard too. And that to give back to him in tithes and offerings to the place, to the church, the place of your spiritual nurture, cultivates a regular pattern of remembering God's grace and his goodness to you. That is actually a grace. So a pattern of regular giving. Second, do you give your money away sacrificially? Now I'm going to acknowledge something up front that if you are very, very wealthy, this can actually be difficult. This this can be pretty hard. Um, and those who do have to bear that burden of kind of wondering what is actually a level of sacrificial giving, I don't envy the, the decisions and the choices that you have to make. But I'm also going to acknowledge that my guess is that most of us in this room this morning don't bear that burden necessarily. That, that we can figure out ways to give money uh, away to the point that it involves some level of sacrifice in our lives some level of uncertainty, some place where, God, you're really going to kind of have to take care of me here because I'm not really sure what's going to happen. And and that's a grace as well because it is a balm against the lie that we care for ourselves. God provides for you, all of you and me. God provides for you 
And when you give sacrificially, you remember that. This is exactly how this has worked in the life of our family. I'm going to give you two examples from the Holland family. There are a lot more, but I'm going to give you two. When our son, Jackson, our oldest son, was four years old, going into pre-K, we applied to, to pre-K at a, at a well-known uh, Christian school. This is in 2002. So this is before Trinity Classical School or Paradis. Or, so if you're wondering, hey, why didn't you do Trinity? You know, anything, it didn't exist, okay? Um, we applied to a well-known Christian school in town, hoping that because I was a pastor, um, we would get a scholarship and we'd be able to send him to pre-K at this school. Uh, we did not get a scholarship at this school. And when we did the calculation, we saw the full tuition, and we laid it against what we were giving to Christ the King at the time. It almost came down to be exact to the penny. It was crazy. And in other words, it was almost the, our exact tithe was almost exactly the same as the tuition to this school. What to do, right? We did not enroll him at that school. Instead, we pretty much pieced together an education for him uh, between pre-K and second grade. He went to a different school uh, for three straight years, which is pretty lousy parenting, I must say. You know, children need consistency and all that stuff. But, the, but our lousy parenting is part of the point of the story um, because God took care of it. He took care of him. He, he graduated from high school. He went to college. Uh, he's probably going to graduate from college this May. We would have missed the blessing of watching God put all of these pieces together if we had given in. And, and, and we were wrestling with whether we should give in to that fear. If we had given in to that fear, we would have missed that blessing. The second time that this happened to us was we bought the current house that we live in. We were working with a realtor and a mortgage broker. They kept trying to sell us a house that was 10% more than we could actually afford if we were tithing, you know, it was, it was, it, they were kind of like, look, just stretch just a little bit. You can get into this house. You can get into this neighborhood. I'm looking at your finances. We can, you can do it. And we're making the calculation saying, well, we can't really do it, you know, but they were trying to convince us and the fear was creeping in. What happens if we can't get into this neighborhood, into this school, right? So we fired them both. And we got a new realtor, a new mortgage broker who were Christians and they understood what we were dealing with. And they actually provided, the Lord provided for us a really great house that our family has grown up in all of those years. It's, it's not perfect, but it's what we needed. And God made a path. But it was scary. It was, it was, it was scary both times because the future of those decisions was completely unknown. Are we going to mess up our child, our dear firstborn, if he doesn't go to this school? I actually thought we might. It turns out we didn't. You know, but we had to trust God. We didn't know. It is scary, but it's more beautiful and it's more hopeful. Do you know the one other really confusing thing that we see in this passage here in Mark? It's in verse 21. After the young man comes to Jesus and told them, and Jesus says, all you need to do is keep the commandments. And the guy says, all this I have done since my youth. Jesus could have gone a couple of ways here. He could have said, no, you haven't. You haven't heard my Sermon on the Mount, have you, Jesus says. You know, uh, Let's talk about adultery, for example, right? Uh, he doesn't argue with him. The text says Jesus looked at him and loved him. Now, that's weird, isn't it? Why does Mark say that? 
Why does Mark tell us explicitly that Jesus loved this young man standing in front of him? We've already talked about Jesus being God himself, and we know that God is love. And so we know that whenever Jesus is dealing face-to-face with any person, he is loving that person. Why does Mark feel like he needs to bring that to the fore here? Well, the text is not explicit about that, but I remember Tim Keller one time talking about this passage, and he made this point. Jesus was rich, Jesus was young, and Jesus was a ruler. Jesus is rich and young and a ruler. So what we have in this story right here is the king of the universe. A young man himself, Jesus is, walking with dedicated focus toward the cross, looking at this rich young man, this earthly rich young man, with a heart of compassion, looking into his eyes and not saying but thinking, you have no idea, dude. You have no idea what it really means to be wealthy. If you want to see rich, you're looking at it. But do you know why you can't tell? Because I gave it all up. I cast it all off. I stripped myself of it. To be here, standing in front of you, having this conversation, and going to the cross. Honestly, Jesus says, if you really do sell everything that you have, if you really do give it all to the poor, if you really do follow me, you're not losing anything. You're gaining everything. Jesus looked at him because he saw, in some ways, himself there in a particular way. And he loved him you know what Jesus loves you too he does he loves you in your struggle to hold on to financial resources with a death grip because you're anxious and you're afraid he gets it and he loves you he loves you when you wrestle in your heart regarding what is really most valuable the kingdom of God or the kingdom on this earth that you are working to build he gets it and he loves you he loves you Because he went ahead and sold it all. He sold all of it to the point of his death and has purchased with that sale your heart and your life and you. That is the heart of true wealth that gives us the freedom to let go. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do thank you for giving all of your wealth up voluntarily that we might have life with you. We pray that we would so embrace that life, that we would so treasure it, that we treasure nothing on this earth, anywhere near to it. But we open our hands and we give back to you that others may know. In Jesus' name, amen.